Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora, I'm Claire Finlayson, Programme Director of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. The 2019 festival recording that you're about to hear was brought to you with funding from the Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature and with the support of ORFM. This session, Marcus Suzak, was chaired by Charlotte Graham McClay and presented by Galloway Cook Allen in association with the Auckland Writers' Festival. Enjoy. Kia ora koutou katoa, ko Charlotte Graham McClay, toku ingoa, and I'm so excited to have you all here with us um, on this fantastic evening of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. Um, our guest this evening, Marcus Zusak, is a lover of stories, and his are epic. Richly detailed, extravagant, often quite daring in their ambitions and form. And he wrote one of the most beloved novels of a generation, really, The Book Thief, the story of a young woman's despair and hope as she searches for meaning and understanding in Nazi Germany during the Second World War. It was published in 2005, and you can still walk into pretty much any bookshop in New Zealand and find it on the bestseller's shelf. So then Marcus had to write his sixth novel after that. (laughs) No pressure. Um, And after 13 years, he is back with the book Bridge of Clay, set in modern-day Australia this time, in which he takes huge, ambitious leaps of story, tackles Herculean tasks of narrative to bring you a tale that, at its heart, is about people just trying to live in this world with all of the humour and pathos that Marcus has become known for in his writing. Before The Book Thief, Marcus had written four other novels. His books have been translated into more than 40 languages. And he's here tonight with support from Galloway Cook Allen in association with the Auckland Writers' Festival. Um, Let's please give him another warm welcome. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Uh, uh, thanks, Thanks for having me in this city in this part of the world that it's just beautiful here. It is, you know, um, it's the sort of place I'd want to live. And uh, I ran down to the beach today, I ran to St. Clair and uh, just loved it and sort of just fell in love with it. So I don't want to say something really ridiculous like, I'm sure you know how lucky you are, but um, it's great to be here. And, uh, and just two things, uh, it's not housekeeping, it's uh, it's more just. Firstly, I'm just so grateful that you've turned up, because uh, <laughs> it's every writer's, you know, every writer's got at least a top twenty humiliation stories, you know. Uh, and uh, m- one of my favourites is I went over to Margaret River when my first book. So in Western Australia, I'm from Sydney. Uh, I got sent over to Margaret River to do my first ever reading in a library at Margaret River Library. Got nothing against Margaret River, by the way. And uh, <clears throat> I went over there, and of course, everyone said, "Oh, it's such a <clears throat> sorry, such a great town. Everyone loves the arts here. Everyone loves books. Such readers." And, of course, I got to the library to do the event and no-one turned up. And uh, that's not even the best part. The best part is that the librarian still made me read from my book. (laughs) 
just to her. All right? and, uh, and, and that's where you just think, God, now you just go, no, I'm not reading from my... We're going to the pub. All right? uh, but uh, and actually, I'm lying. There was a guy reading a science fiction or a fantasy novel up the back, and every now and again, he would interject with something, and then he'd get back to his book. So uh, that's how grateful I am that you're all here tonight. Uh, uh, the second thing was, I know uh, Claire just said to me, Simon, wherever you are out there, I am keen for a surf tomorrow, but just don't expect it, me to be a good surfer. All right, now <laughs> we can move on. Okay, excellent. Um, so one of the things that I'd ask Marcus, because the Bridge of Clay is so distinct in its tone <coughs> and, and style and language, was whether you could set the scene by reading a little bit for us, mm-hmm. um, which you've kindly obliged. Yeah. And you've, You've brought the book, but I actually think at this point you could just about do it without the book, right? Like, you know every word of this book Oh, my so God. Well. I mean, I... Yeah. I'm not going to make you. I'm just saying. <laughs> I think, you know, actually, I, I slept in till... This, I mean, I've, I'm a, an early morning person, but I slept in till 11 o'clock this morning, and I think it's because I didn't realise just how much this book had beaten me up and how, how sort of all the bruises and... and but not in that way... Uh, that you think in, in an angsty kind of way, but it's taken me a little while to recover. And uh, I saw photos of myself when it first came out last November, and I just look really tired and really... And then, and then do, you know, people's reactions to the book and people who want it to be the book thief and people who just want, you know... Or, and, and then again, you know, some... And you never want to blame readers, and I certainly don't, but, you know, then it's a book that reveals itself quite slowly... And you don't. You spend the whole book coming to understand Clay and uh, why he is the way he is, and uh, and so I don't know where I was going with all this, by the way. Uh, but uh, so I'm just putting off reading. Uh, but uh, but and so people often ask me, like, why did it take so long? And uh, and what I realise now is that after after the book thief, you know, the challenge of that book was I thought no one would read it. I thought, this book's going to die without a trace. I mean, I imagine someone reading it, and what if, by some miracle, they liked it? They would say uh, to their friend, oh, you've got to read this book. Well, I mean, the friend says, well, what's it about? And you say, well, in the case of the book thief, she says, well, or he says, well, it's set in Nazi Germany, it's narrated by death, nearly everyone dies, and it's 580 pages long. You'll love it. Uh, And so... I thought no one's going to read it with Bridge of Clay. Suddenly, people are pre-ordering it because yeah, you wrote it. yeah and yeah. suddenly it was oh, people are going to read this. Can you write it? Will you write it? And uh, and it was a different game uh, altogether. And uh, and so yeah, it took it was thirteen years between books, and uh, which was you know I sort of realised at some point that I was kind of writing for the world championship of myself. You know, that's what it felt like, and. Uh, and the, the classic thing, so before I read, I'm just going to tell you, I have two kids. I mean, I live in a house with two kids, two cats and two dogs, and my wife and I are up against the rest. And, uh, and so we, um, you know, we just, I just want to, I've got two anecdotes before I read. Uh, one, okay. is, one is that we, um, I was sitting at the kitchen table. I really love the kitchen. Uh, in general, when I do have a room where I work at home, but then I love just sometimes just pulling everything out because I've just made a mess of everything else and going to the kitchen. And I was sitting just before seven in the morning doing last edits of Bridge of Clay, and my daughter, who was 
uh, yeah, just about 11, or just turned 12 actually, was sitting diagonally opposite me at the kitchen table eating her breakfast cereal, eating. Still, it's always in the details, especially, she's having special K over there. And, uh, and I'm looking at it, and I don't know about you, but my kids eat like barbarians, <laughs> all right? And, and, you know, the 12-year-old and the 8-year-old, I don't know which one's worse. And I've looked at her, and I'm, I looked up from the, you know, doing the edit, and I've looked at her, and I just said, are you all right over there? You know, I'm trying to get some work done here. And she's just looked at me, spoon midway to her mouth, and she's just gone, you work? (laughs) And then she's gone off to school, and then I'm thinking that morning, it's sort of bothering me a little bit, and I thought, oh, well, let's test the theory. And so I thought, right, I counted, I I don't count words. Like, so when a writer says to me, oh, I've written 60,000 words, you know, I just go, that doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, So I've always counted pages. And uh, but what I thought is, okay, let's count how many words there are in Bridge of Clay. So I counted, uh, I did the thing on the program where you can, mm-hmm. where it counts it for you, and it was let's say 128,000 words, plus, you know, whatever. And then I thought, now let's divide that. How many days there are in 13 years? <laughs> and it came out as 1.9 words per day. <laughs> uh, not even two. Not even two. And. Uh, and so I thought, yeah, she's got a point. Uh, and, and so that's one anecdote. The other one is, about, is sort of about my son, but first it's about my wife, who is the, the, the real saviour of this book, because in 2016, in middle of, around May, around this time of year, uh, she just sat me down in the kitchen. As I said, that's where the best stuff happens. And she sat me down. She said, right, it's been 10 years now you've been working on this book. I'm giving you one week. Uh, it wasn't one week to finish. It was one week to get happy again writing the book and just to be, be myself again. And that week, honestly, came and went just like all the others because I didn't have it. Like, I spend so much time as a writer going, well, that's not... Like, I've written this, that's not it, and that's not it, and that's not it, and that's not it. I'm mm-hmm. always searching. And then there comes a point when you feel it and then you know, you know oh, this is actually it. And so she made me quit the book and uh, for, I saw what it was like. It's the old cliche that you don't know what you've got until it's gone, until it's taken away from you. And after about six weeks, I, was, I said to her, I think I'm ready to do it now. And, uh, and what was interesting then was that we, took, we went away together for a weekend and I just read everything I had you know, as my final draft so far. And what we realised, we just read it in a day and a half and uh, read through it. We each had a stack of manuscript pages each side, and we were just going on, is this bit alive or is it dead? Is that sentence alive or dead? Just let's bring it back to absolute basics. And what we realised was that I'd written 85% of the book and I'd done 97% of the work, you know, and, uh, and then it was just a matter of, like, go in, get your hands dirty, stop... You know how we all do that thing sometimes where we work really hard at working really hard and then sometimes you just go, just stop with all of that pretense and just do it. And that was what I did and that was when I realised... I I had one little memory and this will become sort of important in a minute. One little memory of being away on holiday with the family and and, uh, 
I, you know, like I said, with the dogs and all that, you know, all that sort of thing, I decided for some reason on a really hot day to wash my car and then vacuum it, vacuumed out the back or whatever. But I was just brushing um, dog hair and sand and everything out of my, my car's just a total mess. And, uh, and, you know, lolly wrappers from kids and all that sort of stuff. And then my son came around the corner, but just as he did that, he was four years old, uh, I just, I was just brushing, um, dog hair out with that just with my t-shirt I took my t-shirt off which I never do and he came around the corner and he stopped and I've got to just tell my my kids they don't call me dad my kids call me pop and the reason they call me pop is because I read the Berenstain Bears with them and uh, and you know how the dad in that is a real idiot (laughs) and they call him pop (laughs) so my kids started calling me pop and uh, and so he came around the corner and he stopped he saw me dead dead in, my tra- in his tracks and he looked at me without my t-shirt on and he's just gone, hey, hey, Pop, what are you doing here in just your nipples? <laughs> and I thought, two things I thought, that is genius. You know, <laughs> not that, you know, and I don't ever say my kids are gifted or anything like that. Yeah. They're not. They're just normal, good kids, really. And, uh, and of course, the second thing I thought was, I might be able to use that. <laughs> so now I will read. Sorry, I just went on and on and on. Uh, so uh, let's see. He so, did tell me he would do this. Start yeah. 15 stories and we'll get to the end of some of them. So um, I'll just read a little bit about uh, the, where we see the Dunbar family, where Clay has four, old, uh, four brothers. He's the fourth of them uh, out of the five. And uh, we see their parents and we see them as a family for the first time. And this is pretty much everything... Uh, This is Clay's life from the beginning. Once in the tide of Dunbar past, there were five brothers, but the fourth of us was the best of us and a boy of many traits. How did Clay become Clay anyway? In the beginning, there was all of us, each of us our own small part to tell the whole. And our father had helped every birth. He was first to be handed to hold us. As Penelope liked to tell it, he'd be standing there, acutely aware, and he'd cry at the bedside, beaming. He never flinched at the slop or the burnt-looking bits as the room began to spin. For Penelope, that was everything. When it was over, she'd succumbed to dizziness. Her heartbeat leapt in her lips. It was funny, they liked to tell us, how when we were born, we all had something they loved. Me, it was my feet, the newborn crinkly feet. Rory, it was his punched-up nose when he first came out and the noises he made in his sleep. Something like a world title fight, but at least they knew he was alive. That was also the birth of my son. His nose came out sideways across his face and we said to the doctor, have a look at his nose. (laughs) And the doctor leaned in and he's gone, oh, yeah. He reached out and he went... (laughs) And then it was straight. And we went, how good's that? (laughs) Anyway, sorry. (laughs) Couldn't resist. Henry had ears like paper. Tommy was always sneezing. And of course, there was Clay between us, the boy who came out smiling. As the story went, when Penny was in labour with Clay, they left Henry, Rory and me with Mrs Chilman next door. On the drive to the hospital, they nearly pulled over. Clay was coming quickly. As Penny would later tell him, the world had wanted him badly. But what she didn't do was ask why. Was it to hurt, to humiliate, or to love and make great? Even now it's hard to decide. Now, I'm going to just leave the... I'll 
do this little bit. It was morning, summer and humid, and when they made it into the maternity ward, Penny was shouting, still walking, and his head was starting to crown. He was very nearly torn rather than born, as if the air had reefed him out. In the delivery room, there was a lot of blood. It was splayed on the floor like murder. As for the boy, he lay in the muggy atmosphere and was strangely, quietly smiling, his blood-curdled face dead silent. When an unsuspecting nurse came in, she stood open-mouthed and blaspheming. She stopped and said, Jesus Christ. It was our mother, all dizzy, who replied. I hope not, she said. (laughs) And our father still grinned. We know what we did to him. Now, I'm just going to read you this one other little piece. It's not long, I promise. No, it's all good. Hey, it's your time. So we're a few years on. In those days, too, I remind myself, our parents were something else. Sure, they fought sometimes, they argued. There was the odd suburban thunderbolt, but they were mostly those people who'd found each other. They were golden and bright-lit and funny. Often they seemed in cahoots somehow, like jailbirds who wouldn't leave. They loved us. They liked us, and that was a pretty good trick. After all, take five boys, put them in one small house and see what it looks and sounds like. It's a porridge of mess and fighting. I remember things like mealtimes and how sometimes it got too much, the forks dropping, the knives pointing, and all those boys' mouths eating. They'd be arguing, elbowing, food all over the floor, food all over our clothes, and how did that piece of cereal end up there, on the wall? Until a night came when Rory sealed it. He spilt half his soup down his shirt. Our mother didn't panic. She stood, cleaned up, and he would eat the rest of it shirtless. And our father got the idea. We were all still celebrating when he said it. You lot too. Henry and I nearly choked. Sorry? You you didn't hear me? Ah, shit, said Henry. Should I make you take your pants off too? For a whole summer, we ate like that. Our T-shirts heaped near the toaster. To be fair, though, and to Michael Dunbar's credit, from the second time onwards, he took his own shirt off with us. Tommy, who was still in that beautiful phase when kids speak totally unfiltered, shouted, Hey, hey, Dad, what are you doing here in just your nipples? (laughs) I told you I'd use it. (laughs) The rest of us roared with laughter, especially Penny Dunbar, but Michael was up to the task a slight flickering in one of his triceps. And what about your mum, you blokes? Should she go shirtless too? She never needed rescuing, but it was Clay who'd often be willing. No, he said, but she did it. Her bra was old and scruffy looking. It was faded, strapped to each breast. She ate and smiled regardless. She said, now don't go burning your chests. We knew what to get her for Christmas. It's funny, like the last little comment I'll make about that is it was really bothering me. I'd used the word broken a lot in the book and that was the original description of her underwear was that it was broken looking and then I just went, what is it? I couldn't get the word, I couldn't get, but I worked and sort of worked on it and then one morning I woke up and I went, scruffy. And it was just exactly right because it took me immediately... Sometimes you, you know you've got the right word when your mind reels back to the moment when you've seen it. And it reminded me 
of what our clo- what our old hills hoist used to look like, you know, with a big family and all the underwear up there, and it was all stringy and shitty and you know <laughs> scruffy, and uh, and uh, and so I thought oh, I finally got that one word right, and that's how so, I kind of that day your one point nine words <laughs> pay it off. I know, yeah, yeah but it, does it count? It was a replacement word. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there are all sorts of rules here. <laughs> so that part of the book. I mean, at, at the start, very close to the start of the book, we know that, that Penny Dunbar has died and that Michael Dunbar has fled, basically, has mm-hmm. left them. And that, that story of this beautiful family life comes pretty far in. And so I guess it kind of shows, for people who haven't read it, the way that this book comes in close to a trauma and has like a little peak and then circles back around and then comes in closer a little bit again and has mm. another peak and then circles back around. And, and that seems like how we actually think about trauma, right? You never actually just, you never just stare it full in the face on the first go. How, presumably that was a really deliberate decision for you, that it was going to take these, this family some time to actually look full in the face of what happens to them. Yeah, it's actually, though, it was not so much for me trauma in that actually I mean there are so many different versions of this book that I have written and uh, where everything's in a different order and where everything like everything was planned and meticulously thought out and and uh, so basically I just use a book like this to I mean this that book had 11 notebooks went through 11 notebooks and usually I just list chapter headings over and over and over again. This is the last one, so there aren't as many. So what of course, do you get from listing chapter headings? <clears throat> what does that do for you? It just keeps me close to the book. Right. And so if I haven't been able to work for a week due to, uh, or work much for all sorts of reasons, I'll just sit down. And what I'm doing is I'm, just, I'm seeing it as I write. So I'll write part one, cities, and then I'll just go portrait. And then I'll go warming up. So portrait will be short for portrait of a middle-aged, portrait of a killer as a middle-aged man, warming up the clay way and so on and so on. And what you want as a writer, I think, is to, like, I really live in two worlds. And I, so I want to, there's the real world and then there's the world I'm writing. And I actually prefer, at different times, I prefer living in each one, you know, however I'm feeling. But you want to feel close enough to your book that you can just wake up in the morning and roll out of bed and land in that world, not have to run 10 miles to get there and then beat the door down to get inside. You always want to feel like it's near you. And uh, and in the case of um, what you're talking about with trauma, I actually think that it wasn't so much the trauma of it. I, for me, it was more about memory and uh, and how we actually live our lives. And so, and the reason this book operates between the past and the present, in you know, uh, and does that all the way through, is because that's how we actually live, and we're often you know, caught between moving forward. And so clay is moving forward. It's like the tide coming in and going out. There's the tide of Dunbar history coming in while clay is going out to to um, reckon with the world. And we can't escape that memory either. Mm-hmm. And so that was why I structured it that way. And also it was the only way I could get the bloody book to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, is honest, the honest thing, you just got to do what works. And that was how what felt right in the end. Mm. Did you have 
disputes with your editors over that, about the way you'd structured it, or the way you do these great things where you plant you plant objects or the name of a book or a clothes peg, whatever, early in the book, and it might not pay off till later, and so you're putting a lot of trust in the reader to to keep these things in their heads, right? Yeah, I mean, my favourite example of that is that when Clay leaves to go and build the bridge, and it's sort of seen, especially by Matthew, the narrator of the book and the eldest Dunbar brother, as a real betrayal, because he's going back to their dad who left them. And, uh, and, but he, he, he takes these little keepsakes to remind him of his brothers, and one of them is the Monopoly iron piece. And that, you don't find out the story behind that until 300 pages later. And, uh, and that's asking a fair bit of your reader. But, you know, that was the thing with this book. I always wanted to respect the reader and I wanted to respect the idea that we live in a world now where so many things are instant. We want everything straight away and, more importantly, we want to know everything straight away. Mm. Uh, and But this is a book where you don't get to know everything straight away. You actually have to wait until... As, till the 99th chapter out of 100 chapters to really know what happened, even if you've guessed it, you know. And, and, uh, and so I just wanted... So it was more just, this is, these are books, you know, and I thought this is the beauty of books. It's like the last... feels like one of the last frontiers for people to hang in there and be tough, like be tough. Like this book, I think, requires a little bit of reading toughness. And, you know, but that doesn't make it easy then when... You know, people. Oh, I've got some classic stories. You know how you know top twenty humiliation stories, where I, uh, my old university that I went to, I, they opened their new bookshop or their renovated bookshop, and I went there. You know, you, you go and do this thing, and there are two hundred and fifty people there, and everyone's happy. You do, you open the bookstore, and then a lady comes up to you afterwards. This is a cautionary tale, by the way. Just don't do this after the yeah. event. <laughs> uh, you can if you want. I'm used to it. Uh, and, but she came up and she said, oh, I just wanted to tell you uh, that I've read Bridge of Clay. I, I just didn't think it was at the same notch as The Book Thief. Uh, just what, and I just thought you'd like that feedback. And, yeah. uh, what is wrong with people, eh? Like, why, uh, there's yeah. someone else at, at, a, at the Perth Writers Festival, another lady said... I've read this with my book club and I don't think I'd have stuck with it if, I, if it wasn't for book club. Uh, and uh, all of the book club agreed that this was the most demanding start to a book they'd ever read. And I'm like, for God's sake, have you read Ulysses? Have you read The Sound and the Fury? You know, uh, hey, have you read... I mean, try Middlemarch, you know. Uh, it's not that difficult. But also, it, it took it out of you for 13 years. And it's just what you want to hear after putting 13 years of your yeah, life into yeah, a book. Yeah, yeah. It was actually a bit shit compared to your last book. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but that's the job and yeah. writing is the kind of job, and I think this is why I love it as well, it's, it's the kind of job that is always testing how much you really want it. Yeah. How much do you want it? Because you work for a day and you get nothing. You work for a week and you get nothing. You work for five or six years with a narrator. This book had a, a narrator named Maggie, who was Carrie Novak, who's Clay's best friend's sister. Uh, she was the first narrator of this and book for six years. And now she's not in it. She doesn't... She was written out of the book. Yeah. Uh, after six years... After six years... Uh, I just went, yep, sorry, Maggie, time to go. Uh, and, you know, and it shows the sort of brutality. And there was, so, there was a line uh, very early on where she said, I'm a girl, but I'm a Dunbar boy. And, I was, and it was almost like I was hanging on to it because of that line that I loved. And, uh, 
But it just, I just didn't like where, the voice was fine, but I just didn't like where that was taking the story and I finally admitted it after six years. I mean, talk about regressed yeah. thoughts. Uh, but, but that's, you know, so it's testing you. It's testing you and it's the easiest world in the job to not, uh, sorry, the easiest job in the world to not do uh, because you can, you know, waste your time doing other things. So, um, but that's why I love it as well. Do you... Because just the mental fortitude required to do that is just astonishing to me. Like, do you catastrophize? Because I know for me, the difference between, like, oh, this isn't going very well, I can get from there in about three seconds to this future in my head where I've had to move back to my dad's apartment in Brisbane and I'm sleeping on the pull-out sofa bed in his living room and I can get there so fast. Like, what is, is that? does that happen to you when, when things aren't going well? Are you like, I'm never writing again, I'm never writing another book? Yeah, I think so. Where I, I, There were times where I just... I had, and I said, actually, and I, for me it wasn't really catastrophizing. I mean, I think after a decade where you <laughs> haven't finished a book, you've probably got reason Fair. to worry. <laughs> uh, but I, but I would say, I'd say to like, my publisher, and for some, I've got a real aversion to the word agent. For some, like, it sounds like really like a, it's a Hollywood yeah, yeah. word. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, okay, so I'd say to my publisher and my agent, I said, we just have to maybe face the fact that I might be just washed up and I haven't got it anymore and I can't... You know, and it's amazing to say that when you've, you know, you've just hit 40 and, uh, you know, which that just... You know, where some... You know, like Annie Prue didn't start writing till she was 55 years old and she wrote The Shipping News and uh, and and so I just sort of had... It was a more a, a kind of moment of realism where um, I just had to face that and, and that was the first step to sort of going, all right, well, just, you know, pull your finger out and do the job and stop worrying. You can, so sometimes my motto is just you can, you can work or you can worry. Mm. So, and I, you just feel so much better when you work, even if, even if you get nothing in a day. It's better to end up with nothing after a day of writing than end up with nothing after a day of worrying. Uh, it, it just is because at least you've done something and you've exercised. Uh, you know, it's a bit like going for a run or, mm. or whatever. You just feel better for having done it. Mm. I wondered how much of that had been from from the the weight of having written the book thief first. Like I read this fascinating interview with Christos Cholkas, who mm-hmm. wrote The Slap, mm. um, which some of you may have read the book or seen the. It was a mini series, right? Mm. The, um, and he was saying that the the success of the slap had I always remember him saying it had given him this this acquisitive grasping acquisitive grasping quality in that he had this greed for more, not in terms of money or fame, but after having a book <coughs> go like that, mm. it was very hard to put aside the feeling that all books should go like that or, or each book should then mm. be better than that. Did you have to did you have to wrestle with that? I think it's yeah, there's a, an element, and it's funny, I mean, it just struck me as you were saying that. I think it's just this, I, it's, a, it's almost like, this almost sounds so overly grandiose, but it's almost a quest for love in that all these people love me, all these people love me, you know, I need to get them to love me again. Mm-hmm. You know, I need to write a book that everyone loves again, you know, and then, then you start, then at least you can at some point you've got to separate yourself, yourself from the book. They don't love me, mm. they love the book. And, uh, and then you've got to start to say, and, that, and I think that's the, that was the fight with this book, is it was, I knew it was going to be a book that everyone wasn't going to love. 
and I knew um, that that was going to be a challenge. And so there were so many times where I was trying to get the voice to be quirkier, you know, and just a, a bit more of a come-with-me voice. I mean, the book Thief has a real... And all my other... All my previous books had a real come-with-me voice, but Matthew is a 31-year-old um, floorboard layer, you know, and, uh, you know, and carpet layer. And it's not that he... And he's actually really articulate, but he's also... He's the tough older brother who's held them all together. He's not saying, oh, come on, everyone, come with me. I'm going to tell you a story. He's saying, you got to come with... You know, he's basically saying, come with me if you're, if you're good enough. You know, come with me if you're worthy of, of coming with me because I've been through a hell of a lot and so is my brother and so have we all. So are you up for it? And that was the voice the book needed. And, and I probably have, you know, I think it's really important in these sort of, on these nights is that, you know, you can get to know a writer by reading their books, but you don't necessarily get to have a conversation with them. And not that I see that as some great privilege to have a conversation with writers. I mean, it's funny, you know, um, listening to John earlier, you know, I mean, we're usually just whinging about everything, uh, you know, and, uh, and, but, um, you know, at the same time, now I lost it because I had to say that. Uh, I was going to say something good and now I've lost it. What was I talking about? You'll, you'll come back to it. You'll come back to it. Um, one of the, I mean, maybe, maybe looking at the, you were talking about Matthew. Mm, and, that's right. Yeah. I mean, you're, you, you're such a ch- fierce champion for young men. Like for, it, it feels like throughout your books for, I mean, you think of like Rudy in the book there for mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the Messenger or, mm. or in this book. Um, it, kind of like the humour and inventiveness, like the absurdest humour that is so clever that if you actually just be still and listen to teenage boys, they come out with that kind of stuff all the time. Yeah. Is, that, is that something that, that was part of what delighted you about writing that book? I, I think it was... Uh... I did just sort of realise, yeah, no, I'm not going to go back to the previous thing. Uh, is, no, uh, do it. Do always, it. No, it's okay. okay. But um, there's a moment where Henry and Clay are on the roof and Henry sort of slaps Clay across the side of the head and Matthew says, it's a mystery even to me how boys and brothers love. And to me, if there was a... If, if there was... If I sort of love Kurt Vonnegut's books, how it's, there's a title and it could... And then it says, or... Yeah. yeah uh, it, there's... Uh, the, you know, so uh, that would be the other title for this book in a way. Although that's the the really funny thing is that a lot of people and a lot of columnists or whatever, you know, say things like, oh, it's so much about young men and all of that sort of thing. And it's true. But the real heart of the book is their mother. Mm-hmm. And uh, and actually it's three women. It's it's Penny Dunbar, it's Carrie Novak, who was Clay's best friend, who's an apprentice jockey, and, uh, and a really small character who's actually really important named Abby Hanley. One of my favourite characters. Well, yeah. And it's funny, she was the sort of character that, I, that wrote, was written so freely because nothing was actually writing on her, yeah. you know, in a way, in the, in the sense of she's the, the first woman who breaks Michael Dunbar's heart, the father of the Dunbar boys. But she, and what I loved about that idea was that she then comes back, it's a bit character who you think has played her part and then she's, it circles back to the point where she's the final person to give Clay the impetus to finish building the bridge. Mm. And, uh, and in the midst of all of that, you've got these five brothers who are always roaring at each other. And, uh, you know, and I just really love those boys. And, uh, and you know, so, and sometimes I even get a bit emotional just thinking about them and, 
and uh, and and just how they deal with the youngest of them, Tommy, and his love for animals. You know, and just to to give you an idea, they do. There are five Dunbar boys, and they have five pets. Um, they've got a border collie, a tabby cat, a goldfish, a pigeon, and a mule. And uh, and the book starts with the mule standing in the kitchen. And uh, Matt's like, God, did this, those bastards leave the back door open again? And so much of this book, and the mule's name is Achilles, uh, and uh, so much of, they all have Greek names. The pigeon is Telemachus. And, uh, <laughs> and there's a, the, again, we find that out, but we don't know why. And that you don't, the whole first part runs through and we find that there are these n- animals with these ridiculous names and... Uh, the gold, you know, the goldfish is Agamemnon, and so on, and uh, and you know, and it, it all just there's you know, why have they got these names? And then you get your first clue in the second part where it says that Penelope Dunbar, who was originally Penelope Leshushko, and she grew up in a wa- in the watery wilderness of Eastern Europe, and the watery wilderness is one of the lines that's repeated in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. And she has come to she comes to Australia holding those two books in English, and uh, and again it was the idea underneath everything was that I realised that all of the boys had nicknames, and then she has the, she has several nicknames. She's Penny's called the birthday girl. She's called the mistake maker, and I wanted these people to have these larger than life larger than life personas at times, because we all think we live these dull suburban lives. But we all fall in love. We all have people die on us. We all have big arguments in the kitchen. And, uh, and I wanted to celebrate that. And so I realised I was kind of writing a suburban epic. Yeah. And, uh, and it to, that is about the big moments in our lives and the moments that really, that really matter and, uh, and that it's worth fighting for, I think. Mm. And your closeness to that world, your emotional closeness to that world... Um really came through in the audiobook. So Marcus reads the audiobook of his own book, and there's a couple of things that are really cool about it. I think hearing it read to you in Australian is good because it makes the jokes much funnier. <laughs> um, but also, just as you would have heard, the, the lyrical kind of rhythm and, and almost meter of, <laughs> of the book is really cool, read aloud. But also, in the last few chapters of the book, just when I was getting really emotional and it was, you know, my second go round, you, the reader, are also getting yeah. pretty emotional I've, you while know, I'm reading it. Yeah, I've actually never listened to it. It's like I'll never read it now, uh, you know, because you only find what's wrong with it. Mm. And, uh, but it was really interesting. The, the, hard, the, the thing about reading it, I, was, I, would never, I didn't put my hand up to do it. Some, my publisher asked me and... Uh, it's one of those funny things because basically the book was coming out in three territories at once, which is how things really work now. It was coming out in Australia and New Zealand and, um, and then the UK and America all at the same time. And, uh, and there's all this positioning and so on, and I knew that my Australian publisher asked me to do it so that they could at least control the audio version of the book. And so I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And there was, time was limited and... The, the main reason we had to stop, because I knew every single... I, I knew the only mistakes I made, actually, were where I read something that I'd made a last edit on in the last couple of months, and I read it how it was uh, instead. Uh, and uh, and, and at, towards the end, it was quite interesting. Cause, and the worst thing, the main reason we had to stop, people would go, stomach rumble, 
because yeah. uh, that mic picks up everything. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, stomach rumble. And then and towards the end, there was getting towards the end and my stomach was rumbling terribly, you know. And so I, I went out and had a few scotch fingers, walked <laughs> up the hill, came back, and then I pretty much read the whole last part and the epilogue all the way through without stopping. And in, in between one of the chapters, I leaned out. So there was this little curtain and I took this to, to Stuart, the, the producer, and he was this great guy and uh, from New Zealand, as, as it happens. And uh, I said to him, oh, it almost, sound, it almost sounded a little bit like I was laughing then. And he just looked at me and he went, oh, it doesn't sound like you're laughing. Uh, because I was just, yeah, I was, I was a bit of a mess, but I just hung on to it. There was one little time we were going to make a little, there was one time where they said, oh, we, there was just something there. And I tried to read it over one. I could not get to that level of intensity and emotion again. Like, that was yeah, gone. Was it was all in that yeah. moment. And, uh, and so, and it was just like, I would edit the book reading it aloud and I could read it in a, in a day and a half. Like, I would, just, I would just sit down and I was just a machine. Like, I could, and that is a bit like, and it, it is written in a specific rhythm, the book. Like it always, it strays off it every now and again, but it always comes back to that. And again, that was just to do with it's owing to, the, to, to Homer and mm. that oral tradition of storytelling. Mm. It's, a, it's a beautiful read. The, the oh, audiobook. oh, that's yeah, good because yeah, I'll probably really never good. hear it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's it actually. I was so I was I was so overcome by it, but also quite furious because I know having read the book thief, I came into this book like I'm not going to one. I'm suspicious of you. Like I'm not going to a hundred percent. Like yeah. I don't want to get attached to any of these characters because I know what you're like. Yeah. <laughs> and then of course you get really attached to them, and then it's oh, devastating. Yeah. Um, and so, but then the audiobook the second time round, I'm like, okay, I'm good now. I know what happens. I know what happens. And then you start Just crying, immersed, and I'm yeah. like, oh right, that's it. I'm gone. <laughs> it was quite funny. Like someone said to me, so what do you want people to get out of this book, or how do you want people yeah. to feel at the end of this book? And I just. Sometimes I'm I'm really mean, like, and I seem really cold. It's like some people say to me, you know, how could you let Rudy die at the end of the book of the book thief? And I say, you know, Rudy was my favourite character. He was my favourite character from the moment I had that sort of daydream of him painting himself black with charcoal and becoming Jesse Owens. And then I say, but not for one second did I consider letting him live at the end of the book. And people Savage. just go, God, you cold <laughs> bastard. And, uh, but, but I say, but, and I say, but there's a reason, and that is that I wouldn't love him as much if he survived, and I don't think readers would either. You know, there's a real, um, there's something poetic about that ending and that you get the payoff all that time later of Liesl saying, wake up, Jesse Owens, wake up, Jesse Owens. And at the end of this book, I, I read through it with um, one one of the one of my agents who's just a, a friend like that's how I think of her and uh, she said god she said god how do you want people to feel at the end of this I said I just want people to feel like they've been run over by a truck <laughs> and she looked well, at me done. she looked yeah. at me and she went right got it <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, but now I just think it's kind of the, the softer version of that is is that I just want you to feel like you're a Dunbar boy, you know, mm. or that you're a part of that family and that you know... I mean, probably... And it's interesting the things you get attached to in a book. And I think for me, it's just... It's the little things you like. It's not the, always the big things. And one of the little things is just when Henry comes home and he's deliberately got himself beat up by two of his friends to distract 
Matthew yeah. from Clay coming home <laughs> so that he won't you know, do the same thing to Clay. He thinks, oh, maybe I can be a foil. But he gets it all wrong and he comes home and he sort of collapses to the floor and, they, you know, and, and Matthew says, you know, and he fell to the floor with all the dog hair, cat hair, and God, is was, was that mule hair on the floor? <laughs> and it's just those little things. And if you know, if you can see and sort of smell that mule hair on the lounge room floor at 18 Archer Street, then, you know, you're a Dunbar boy and, you, and I've done my job. Yeah, awesome. Um, I'm going to open the floor for questions in a moment. What's the? Do we have microphones somewhere that, or people yeah. just? Okay, excellent. Um, so maybe um, do you want people to raise their hands or? Um, yeah, okay, cool. Um, I might ask you one more question while mm-hmm. people are formulating their questions. Um, and I want to ask one about the book thief, which mm-hmm. is um, you talk you talk at heaps of schools and stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like you talk to a lot of young people, and I I just wondered with the discussion in the past, like even even three years, the the public discussion around around particular types of leaders and and what people should do when they're faced with leaders or with governments mm-hmm. who are doing the wrong thing and, you know, can you stand up for yourself? How can you stand up for yourself? That sort of thing. Mm. Are you finding that that those parts of the book thief are sparking a lot of those discussions among young people? Because it just seems like, like, I don't know, back when I was a kid and used to be obsessed with reading books about Nazi mm. Germany, people thought that was really weird in the 90s, but now it, it seems like it's more prescient than ever. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, again, sometimes... You know, you sit up here and you you get asked a question like like that, and you want to sound like you want to sound better than you actually are, or you <laughs> want to sound, uh, you know, you give an answer and you go, that's actually not even the truth. And mm-hmm. so usually in that situation, I'll say, I don't know. Uh, but what I would say is, like, I haven't. It's been asked every now and again, mm-hmm. a couple of times, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I think like the way I've always approached you know, my life and things in general is uh, is just that common decency between each other. And, uh, and to me, that was to me more what The Book Thief was about. And the metaphor, that, especially in part eight, where uh, there is the, there's a, in part two is called The Shoulder Shrug, where they, she st- Liesl steals a book called The Shoulder Shrug. Mm-hmm. And, so, and the idea of that book is if everyone shrugs their shoulders enough, you end up with someone like Hitler, you know. And uh, but then in part eight, you've got the—it's not the the standover man; it's the word shaker story. And that's where the you know the little tale is that this guy comes into town and he there, there are all these forests of trees and they've all got Nazi symbols on them and they're full of words that Hitler has sort of cultivated, and he's the one person who's able to chop one of the trees down, and that's the tree they walk on. And that's the world that is here, that is you and me. You know, that's the, that's the thing that we could have done in our personal lives. And, uh, and so that's how I guess I've always approached it is that, you know, you start, you know, you start small, mm. you know, and, and uh, you know, I guess to quote the, the famous Australian singer, you know, that from little things, big things grow, mm. you know. So, uh, so that's, you know, that's where I, I guess I'm at with that question. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, it does. It does. Um, has anybody got questions? 
This is I it's always. Like, I've got to say, this is like when you're in a high school and one of the, uh, someone's hand goes up, and the question is, "Can we go?" <laughs> <laughs> but usually, the lunch bell has gone. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, but yeah, no, so don't don't feel bad. But you know, it'd be good to get one question. But you know, don't yeah, yeah. don't feel like don't feel sorry for me. Don't feel pity. <laughs> but then a question has to be asked. There is one up the back uh, there. You've excellent. saved us all. Yeah, you'd be brave. That's one of the young Make people. Make the microphone in the person too. run. Awesome. <laughs> now, before you even start, I'm just going to say, just exactly for people like you, I always bring something in my backpack. So don't leave tonight until I've given it to you. Okay. <laughs> Um, so you said in um, Bridge of Clay you had this Maggie character who you just completely cut out. Um, in the book Thief, were there any characters who were in there for a long time and you just decided not to have? That's a good question. Yeah, not so much characters, but different ways of the story being told. Now, it is unthinkable now to even imagine that book without death as the narrator, but there, of course, is a version of the book Thief where death is not the narrator. And this is where I say, so I wrote... So writing The Book Thief was just, it was, certainly wasn't easy, but the first month was because I, I lived 8Ks from the beach and I would ride my bike to the beach, go for a swim, ride the 8Ks back and then I'd start work. I mean, it's like how good a life is that? And, uh, and I wrote about 200 pages and it was with death as the narrator. And which I'd got the idea from working with kids at a school where we, I got them to write about colours. I wrote about three colours in the sky at a certain time where someone had died and death was the narrator. And I thought, oh, I'll just throw that into that book that I'm setting in Nazi Germany. Honestly, people think there's always a deep idea in your, in your <laughs> best sort of you know, strain in a book. It's never like that. It's always something offhand. And uh, see how long I'm answering this question just in case there aren't any more. Uh, <laughs> hanging on to it. Anyway, no, this is what I would normally do. Anyway, so I wrote Death as a Narrator. I was loving it. I was just alive. I was writing the book. And, and then I read it in February and I went, that is just appalling. Like that is, there is something dev- devastatingly wrong with this. And so I had a problem. And this is the thing I say to to, I said it to the school group the other day, or yesterday, I said, people think writers, you've got to have an, a great imagination. You don't. You just have to have a lot of problems. And the, the problem is where your imagination is. And so I had a problem. Death wasn't working. So I did the drastic thing, which was I went, right, get rid of death. Liesl's going to tell the story. Now I had a new problem. The new problem was that despite my German and Austrian background, Liesl was the most Australian-sounding German girl in the history of books. <laughs> All right, now I've got another problem. So then I went to third-person narration, which was everything I was trying to avoid in the first place. And then I, I went to a, a sort of a children's book conference down in Hobart, and I was sitting on the back step in Cold Bay, uh, yeah, so a bit north, uh, and... Uh, and I was sitting on the back step and I thought of the last line of the book, which was in homage to the last line of A River Runs Through It, which is, the last line of that book is I'm haunted by waters. And, uh, and I, but I just thought I'm haunted by humans. And, uh, and that, oh, sorry, I just told you the last line of the book if you haven't read it. Sorry, that's the last line it. of the book. Yeah. <laughs> it's been out for 13 years. I don't feel that guilty. <laughs> All right. Anyway, and I went, that's it. That's it. It's just... Everything you've been doing is fine, but it's just a little bit to the left. Death is actually afraid of us 
and for us. And that's how he's telling this story. He wants to prove to himself that humans can be beautiful and worthwhile and selfless. And that's how you write the book. And that's how all of the colour in that book and the colours in the sky, they're those moments of colour in such a terrible time. And, uh, and that's why when people say to me, well, what is the book thief about? It took me about a, you know, half a decade to figure out that this is what it's about. It's, a, it's about the idea that in Nazi Germany, Hitler destroyed people with words. And this is a book about a girl who's stealing the words back. And she's writing her own story. And it's a, hopefully a beautiful story written amongst that ugly world. So that is a five-minute essay <laughs> in answer to your question. <laughs> Thank you, and it was a good question. So that was what was missing, not characters, but a different, um, you know, a different kind of storytelling. Out of all your books, is there a character that you have most connected with? For instance, like the messenger, uh, I am messenger. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that character, and I kind of pitted him with you in mm-hmm. my head. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah, uh, thanks for mentioning. It's funny, one of the things about that book is that over the years, uh, you know, and I guess this is now I'm going straight off on a tangent, which is I didn't let that book, the, I didn't let the messenger, or I am the messenger in some territories, I didn't let that book be published in England for about five years because someone wrote a review on Amazon.com or something saying I can't believe the genius that wrote the book thief wrote this pile of, <laughs> uh, and uh, which is a bit rough. Uh, so were they from England? Was that? I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I didn't want. I just what I didn't want. Like the thing was, no one had ever heard of me before. The book thief. Yeah. I had four books before it, and pe- publishers were putting out my previous books as in right. here's the new yeah. Marcus Zusak book, and I didn't want that to be construed that way. Mm. And so now I look back, and I was I picked up the messenger the other day, and and again this is what I wanted to say before. You know when I said oh, I forgot what I was going to say. What I was going to say is that, to you know, the you, if I had a real criticism of Bridge of Clay, and because I'm, you know, when it takes 13 years, you're hard on, you are hard on yourself. Um, but you know, it was a really tough book to write. It was really hard work, and I think sometimes that hard work shows. You know, whereas the Book Thief is a book that was a lot of hard work, but it appears effortless. Um, but then again, Clay is a sort of character whose his life has not been effortless, and I think so. It suits the book. But it's what also makes it a bit harder to deal with. And uh, but no, Ed Kennedy definitely was me. You know, at that sort of age where I mean, I wasn't a cab driver, but I, I was at university and I was sort of going, God, I've got. You know, I felt a bit like George Costanza. You know, with no no prospects and uh, no you know no real. Not that I didn't have drive. I always had a great commitment to want to be a writer. But I always felt like I wasn't accomplishing anything. And uh, but my favourite characters are often like my favourite character in The Messenger is the doorman, the dog. And interestingly enough, he was a a, a character out of a failed book about a writer. And the dog would just sit at the door. And every time the guy got up and went out, the dog wouldn't move. So the dog moved with the door. And uh, it was a, a Rottweiler cross with a German Shepherd. And he became he's one of my favourite characters. And, um, and I look back really fondly on writing my first five books, you know, and The Messenger especially. It just was not, certainly not effortless. 
But you know, I was young and I had nothing to lose. Yeah, you had the audacity to try some stuff. Like I don't know what the statute on limitations statute of limitations on books is, so I'm going to be vague. But unlike Marcus, who spoiled his own book earlier, um, I the fact that you break the fourth wall in the other direction, where the author inserts himself into the book. Yeah. Like, it's one of those awesome things where you just think, how dare he? But it's fantastic. I know, heaps of people hated that too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's sort of... But it's why not, of, not, right? I, it was one of those things, it was that risk at the end of The Messenger that gave me the courage to then write The Book Thief and write it in the way that I did. So if I was to say, to, to conclude, The Doorman, Rudy... And uh, and in Bridge of Clay, Penny, uh, they've been my favourite characters to write. I would say, definitely. And I think there may have been a last question on this. Yeah. Song. Oh, and another one, and another one. <laughs> I've got. Yeah, I don't live here. I've got nowhere to go. I'll stay here all night. He's going surfing with. Is it Simon in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> Mate, until then. Although after this hour, he might go. That guy's not going to shut up. <laughs> so I'll be the worst surfer in my life. <laughs> Hi. I just wondered how you felt about the film adaptation of the book Thief because I, it's seldom I've come across a film that's almost as good as the book, which I thought was in that case. Yeah, it's... Um, OK, so the film, I've given myself five years before I watch it again. Uh, my kids haven't seen it. And it, it, the film is... Uh, it's one of those things where it has its own audience and I feel like I wrote the book... The film has its own audience. They, it, they, it is not a, really a book for children, but the filmmakers wanted to introduce the theme of the Holocaust to a new generation. Mm. And, uh, and that was kind of how the, the, the vein in which the film was made. And, uh, you know, and you can sort of go on about all these sorts of things where, you know, when your old footy coach comes up to you and says, oh, I really liked your movie, or oh, I saw your movie, I really... And you don't say, oh, well, technically it's their <laughs> movie, but it's my book. You just say... Thanks, Bill. Uh, and uh, and but I obviously I would have done things differently. Uh, but you know, but I'm sure they would have done things differently in the book. So there were some things I loved, and there were some things I didn't. I think that's natural, you know. Um, and the writer, of course, will always complain. Uh, but um, but you know, it was a great adventure as well, and uh, and a really a big learning experience too. But um, you know, it's it's one of those things that it just. It, it's, it's just a, been a lucky book, you know. Every time you thought that book was going to wa- go away, they say, oh, now they're making a movie or now there's going to be a play or whatever, you know. And, you know, look at John Boyne earlier, you know, they've made a ballet and, a, and an opera, you know. And, uh, and so it's, you know, these are the sort of books that it's just like a, a lightning bolt and, uh, you didn't, and the beauty of it is you had no idea it was ever going to happen. So there was a last question. I'm happy to answer it. Yeah. Yeah, I reckon let's do one more. And there are, there are two. I'll be quick, I promise. Because <laughs> I know I've got nowhere to go, but I know you do. Think differently about writing children having had your own kids? Yeah, I think it became... Oh, not, I, I think it just became different. And I think it's... Not, I don't think I wrote children differently once I had children, but I, wrote, I think I've written parents differently. And, uh, and I think... And I've, and that's why we go into the stories of Penny and Michael Dunbar in this book, in Bridge of Clay. I wanted to, where there are tragedies and where there are, say, divorces and things like that, often you just get a little bit of backstory, but I wanted to go into their lives. I wanted this to be 
a real world. I wanted to create, you know, it's funny that you think of science fiction or fantasy novels that, you know, there's this whole world building thing, but you do that in contemporary fiction as well. And that was why I, I chose to say, well, let's see where Penny Dunbar came from. Let's see where Michael Dunbar came from. Because Clay is the sort of character, he's the sort of kid, I was that kid. I was the fourth of, I was the youngest of four children. And I think the reason I became a writer is because I loved my parents' stories. I was spoiled, but not in the way, every spoiled child, it's like the big beginning of, you know, Anna Karenina, where, you know, say all, all happy families are the same, but uh, are alike, but um, every unhappy family is the same, is, is unique in their own way. And it's the same with spoiled children, according to them. Uh, and uh, I was spoiled because I got to spend time with my mum and dad at, a, at an age that was actually meaningful. You know, so I didn't get their attention in, you know, from one to ten. Well, I did, but, you know, but I didn't get it when I was a really little, but I got it when I was a teenager and I'd say to my mum, can you tell me the story about when Munich got bombed? I'd say to my dad, tell me about when you just went, decided, you just went, ah, oh, Hitler Youth, that's boring. I'm going to go to the river and throw rocks in the water, you know. And so I'd hear all of those stories and I think that's how I became a writer. And, I've, and I, I'm actually, it's one of the things, I'm not proud of that much of my work, I'm very critical of it, but I've always sort of been proud of how I've treated parents and, uh, you know, that the parents weren't just these idiots who didn't know anything, you know, especially coming up through young adult fiction. You know, the, in the first, my first three books, the Wolf brothers, um, Cameron and Reuben, they, they call their mum Mrs Wolf because they, they kind of idolise her, you know, they put her on a pedestal and that's how I've always felt about my parents. So if anything, I've sort of gone that step further with Bridge of Clay. And last question. Um, that actually follows on quite nicely from your last question. Um, talking about world building, I'm curious, because what's always stayed with me about your novels is the characters, and I've always really just um, internalised them a lot and carried them with me. And I just wonder, when you sit down to start a new story or a new novel, what you have in mind? Like, do you just have a character? Do you have a story? You know, what do you start with? And how much do you have to develop as you go? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And it's a wise question, especially for anyone wanting to write, is, again, I, I, I start to see the shapes of things first and then I start to get a bit of an idea and then I start to get a... And then the, three of the things I think of first are the beginning, the end and the title. And, uh, and I've got those things and sometimes I'm almost writing towards the title. And, uh, and so... Uh, but I know it's... I, I'm not sure I know exactly when it's time to start writing. I, I'm very all or nothing. I'm very... You know, I sit down and then I, I, I sort of go, right, now I'm going to do some planning. I'm just going to write. And then I'll, I will write a few things down here and there and I start to gather things. And, but then I just... I go, right, this is it now. Now you've just got to... Now you've got to write. And I just try to write the beginning. And, uh, and I spent a little bit too long writing the beginning with Bridge of Clay. <laughs> I, yes on the, there was I think there was a time where I wrote the first page for about a year a year <laughs> on the first page but um but yeah it's um I think it, it's just yeah there's a moment where you start to feel okay there's a spark now there's a spark all right now let's let's start the fire and then you write that first chapter and, and it should be a joy and, uh, and then you do that because you know there are going to be problems 
down the track. And so I'll work on that and then I'll say, right, now let's get to the next part. And I, I tend, when I'm writing my best, I tend to write in sort of 50-page uh, sections and, uh, or a part here or there. So um, I hope that answered your question. And, uh, and uh, you know, if that's, you know, anyone out there, this is probably, and I think the last thing I can say is, because um, it's nice to round things off, is that anyone out there who wants to write and, uh, and you know, I, the one thing I would say, and it's not that I, I'm still, I still don't know anything about writing, honestly, <laughs> is how I usually feel. You start to write a new book, it's like you don't know anything. Um, but the one thing I'll say is just to, to take it easy on yourself on your bad days, you know, because you're going to have bad days. And also, uh, you know, and those days you just think, you know, it's okay to watch movies. It's okay to do something else. You know, and the, it's okay because what you're doing in that time is you're actually cultivating the iron will that you actually need to do it. And then there comes a day when you say, right, now it's time to do it, and you will. And, uh, and so just don't be too tough on yourself. That's my biggest advice because then, you know, it might end up taking you 13 years. <laughs> so, so thank you. Thanks very much for having me. And uh, just before you... While I'm at it, I think Charlotte did such a great job. Can we give her a huge round of applause too? Thank you. Um, And I want to also thank all of you very much for coming out this evening and for the fantastic questions. They were all really good. Um, Marcus will be outside. Am I pointing the right direction? I didn't come in these doors, so outside this way, this way, that way. Marcus will be outside in a moment uh, signing books. Um, You can grab one from the UBS table, which is also outside. Um, And I would just like us, before we leave, to thank Marcus very much one more time for sharing so generously. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival recording was brought to you with funding from the Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature and with the support of ORFM. The festival receives help from many corners, but we'd like to give special thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council, the Otago Community Trust and the Lion Foundation. Mm -hmm.